Afrika Zola Afrika amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figi Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Angola goes to the polls today to elect a new president UN envoy expresses concern over human trafficking in Libya. In economics news, Oxfam says South Africa's efforts to alleviate poverty will fail. And in sports news, Spain's La Liga to help Safa develop South African football. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Angolans are voting in an election marking the end of President José Eduardo de Santos' 38-year reign. The MPLA, which has ruled since Angola's independence from Portugal in 1975, is expected to win the election. De Santos' unexpected retirement, reportedly prompted by ill health, has triggered the biggest political transition in decades for Angola. His chosen successor loyalist, Defence Minister João Lorenco, is expected to avoid immediate change in a government often criticised for corruption and its failure to tackle dire poverty. The United Nations Children's Fund says there has been an increase in the number of what it calls children human bombs by Boko Haram militants in northeast Nigeria. UNICEF there has, says there have been 83 so far this year, four times as many as the whole of last year. The Children's Agency has denounced the use of child human bombs as an atrocity. UNICEF spokesperson in Geneva, Mariksi Makadu. The use of children in such attacks has had a further impact of creating suspicion and fear of children who have been released, rescued, or escaped from Boko Haram. As a result, many children who have managed to get away from captivity face rejection when they try to reintegrate into their communities, which compounds their suffering. Eight people have died, many others injured in Guinea in a mudslide at a rubbish landfill site on the outskirts of the capital, Conakry, amid torrential rains. The disaster which occurred in the Dar es Salaam neighborhood follows major landslides in Sierra Leone and the Democratic Republic of Congo. They've left hundreds of people dead or missing since last week. The United Nations Human Rights High Commissioner Ziyad Rahad al-Hussein has welcomed the decision by three countries to repeal laws allowing rapists to avoid prosecution by marrying their victims. Lebanon, Tunisia and Jordan made the legislative changes over a recent three-week period. Jocelyn Sambira reports. These are hard-won victories thanks to the tireless campaigns over the years by human rights defenders, in particular women human rights defenders, according to a statement 
issued by Zaid's office. The UN rights chief called on the three countries and other countries in the region to build on what he described as this positive momentum and work to repeal other legislation that condones sexual violence against women and girls or perpetuates discrimination against them. As an example, he cited a law in Lebanon which grants freedom to those accused of having sex with a minor if they marry their victims. And finally, Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari will spend three months working from home after rats damaged his office. His spokesperson says the office requires renovation after damage to furniture and air conditioning in his absence. Buhari has just returned from spending three months in the UK amid widespread concerns over his health. The BBC's Didi Akunyele reports. The president is back, but the rats have moved in. A presidential spokesman told the BBC that Buhari's office is being renovated after rodents damaged his furniture and air conditioning units. He added that while Buhari is unable to work from his office in its present state, working from home will not affect his productivity in any way. President Buhari returned to Nigeria on Saturday, over 100 days after receiving medical treatment in London. He has since been criticized on social media for failing to make mention of his health issues in an address to the nation on Monday morning. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. It's 8.07 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. As Angolans prepare to vote for a new leader today, Amnesty International says the next president must guide the country out of a spiral of oppression that tainted the brutal 37-year reign of outgoing president Jose Eduardo dos Santos. The country goes to the polls to elect a successor to Dos Santos, whose rule has been characterized by repeat attacks on the rights to freedom of expression, association and peaceful assembly. For more on this, Economiso spoke to David Machine, Amnesty International's researcher for Southern Africa. The Angolan said to the polls is that they will be free to express their opinions, they will associate with with whoever uh, political party or leader they want. Uh, They will will be free to propagate their ideas and discuss them freely without um, fear of intimidation. But beyond the elections, beyond the elections, what we are calling the new Angolan government for, whoever wins the election, is that the new government will have a golden opportunity to turn a page on what we know is an appalling human rights record 
uh, over which the current government has presided for about four decades. So we are calling on the new Angolan government, whoever is going to win the elections, to uphold the rule of law and respect uh, human rights, both civil and political rights, as well as economic, social, and cultural rights. That's what we are calling for at the moment. Now, let's take a look at uh, President uh, Dos Santos's time in power. How would you uh, characterize his tenure? Well, it's not news to any one of us who have been following the situation in Angola that President Dos Santos and MPLA have presided over an appalling human rights record for about four decades. Uh, we can give examples of uh, incidents of human rights violations, for example, uh, last year, from 2015 to 2016, there's, there's been this problem of Angola 17 youth activists who had been arrested and charged simply because they gathered together to read a book and discuss you know, political issues in their country. Uh, we can talk about you know, the forced disappearance of human rights activists as well as killing of human rights activists. A good example took place in 2012 when Silva, Kamulinge, and uh, uh, Isaias Kasuli were forcibly disappeared by the security forces and killed simply because they were expressing an opinion contrary to uh, the opinion of the government. There are many, many cases of human rights violations that have taken place over the rule of the Santos. Mm. And we are calling on the new government to actually turn the page on that history. Now, uh, certainly a lot of work uh, needs to be done in terms of repairing some of the things um, that have uh, been uh, uh, have, have damaged um, certain areas of the country. Now, what should the incoming president be prioritizing in your view, David? So, here is a good example of what is possible in Angola. The Angolan judiciary has demonstrated that it is possible to abolish repressive laws that have been put in place during Dushanko's you know, government. Recently, the Constitutional Court took down the NGO law that had very stringent restrictive measures against NGOs and civil society more generally in Angola. That was a courageous decision. It's a demonstration of what is possible. So what we want is that the new coming government will allow the judiciary to function appropriately, independently as it should, that the new laws that have been put in place must be aligned with the Constitution and the international human rights laws. That's what we are hoping that the new government is going to do, no matter who wins the elections, because now there are five political parties running and one political coalition. So we have six contenders in the election. So we are calling upon them that if they win the elections and form a new government, they must have a rule of law, they must defend and protect human rights. That's what we expect them to do. That was David Machine, Amnesty International's researcher for Southern Africa, on the line speaking to Zikona Miso. Angolans head to the polls today to elect their new president. Long-term incumbent President Dos Santos will not be running for re-election after 37 years in power. Dos Santos, who is now 74, is Africa's second longest-serving president. On the streets, one of the main election issues is the economy. The oil-rich country has been feeling the pinch. 
two years after the global price of oil fell. The BBC's Mayeni Jones went to a market in the capital, Luanda, to speak to some of the voters. I've come to Congolensis, which is one of the most popular markets here in Luanda. It's full of kadongeos, which are minibuses that people use for public transport. There are market people with their goods spread on the street, selling everything from fresh fish, vegetables, dried goods, soap, sponges, used clothes. And people here surrounding me were yelling a minute ago, Mudansa, Mudansa, we want change, we want change. I spoke to one of the women here and she says that she has many children. She's unable to send them from school. The price of food has doubled in the last year and that it desperately needs the economic situation of the country to change. She says that she wants change, that things have been going very badly for them. There's no employment here in Angola, that they need work. They need work for their children. They need some sort of change this time around. Angola has been hit hard by the global drop in the price of oil. 90% of the country's exports come from the oil industry, and this has had a knock-on effect on the price of essential goods, as Angolan economist Preciso Domingos explains. Since uh, the country relies almost in everything in imports, so we needed to sell oil before in order to get dollars, enough dollars in order to be able to sustain our imports. Uh, with the sharp decrease of oil price, so it means that our well terms of trade are now very, very, very low. So the country right now uh, has not been able to get enough dollar to sustain the imports that the economy needs. Uh, All, even the formal sector and the informal sector, relies on imports. So right now, it just means or meant for the country the increase of the prices. So the cost of of living in Angola is now very uh, much more expensive. Angola's reliance on imports has meant many businesses have run out of stock since the crisis, leading to job losses. Unemployment is high and rising amongst people like Gaspar de Lucas de Paula. He used to work for a printing business. Hey, I stay 80 months in my house, don't have a job because everything stopped. Gaspar isn't alone. Rui dos Santos runs a national chain of electronic shops. He says he's had to lay off a third of his staff. As our products are imported uh, and as there is limitation on the availability of currency to to uh, the type of products that we sell. Uh, we have difficulties replacing our stocks. So we are start, start firing some people. And today, from 1,500 workers, we are now 1,017 workers nationwide. And uh, how optimistic are you about your business pros- prospects moving forward? Well, <laughs> this is the fifth crisis I live. <laughs> Uh, the first crisis, I was very young. It was on the colonial time, and I only saw my my father my, and my mother going through it. Uh, the, after independence, we got four, and this is sorry, this is the fourth crisis. Uh, we will f- survive, but we will not have any serious problems because we can produce things uh, nationwide. Angola has recovered from a lot. After the country's 27-year-long civil war ended in 2002, it quickly became one of the world's fastest-growing economies. But now, 
As Angolans look set to elect a new president for the first time in almost four decades, they're hoping this new era will also usher in more prosperity for all. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's important to look at migration in Libya not just as an internal problem but as a regional issue as according to Maria Dovale Ribeiro, deputy head of the UN mission in the country Unsmil. The UN Refugee Agency recently reported that the North African country was the preferred jumping off point for refugees and migrants hoping to reach Europe even though the journey is dangerous. Ribeiro spoke to El Terrio Guevani about the conditions in the region that favor human trafficking. She began by telling him how the United Nations is working to combat this challenge. The United Nations has been accompanying the situation of people finding themselves in a situation of illegal migration and being more vulnerable to trafficking in various ways. I mean, IOM and UNHCR obviously from the protection side, but also in assisting voluntary repatriation and also working with the Libyan authorities to ensure that the care being provided is more adequate and more in keeping with the uh, international norms. This is, is, continues to be a major challenge. You know, when you look at trafficking, you have to look at what are the conditions that actually favor trafficking. That's why it's important to look at migration in Libya or illegal migration through Libya, not just as an internal Libyan problem, but as a regional issue. And the importance of addressing, particularly, for example, in the south of Libya, which borders the desert areas of Algeria, Mali, uh, Chad, and Niger, to look at the economic dynamics which favor trafficking and to look at ways of working with those communities to provide alternatives. Can you talk about the main favorable factors for trafficking in Libya? First of all, to bear in mind that the trafficking through the Sahel and Sahara region is not new and has, I would almost say, millennium uh, situation. But some of the, fa- the situations at the moment is if you look at the lack of border control, the lack of implantation of the state of Libya in large parts of the south of the country, the lack of services, the lack of other economic opportunities, and, you know, how do you create poles of economic interest which draw people away from having to 
encourage or favor an economy based on trafficking. What opportunities does Libya have to overcome this problem? Libya has one major big opportunity that it has lots of resources. Even if at the, in terms of its capacity to use these resources at the moment is very challenged because of reconstitutions resulting not just from the current conflict but also from lack of development of these institutions during the 40 years of Gaddafi's uh, reign. It also has seen a deterioration in the public service and also in the more decentralized institutions. So one of the big challenges is how to create the conditions that Libya can start using its resources to better uh, stabilize the country and also to better govern what it has and improve the situation. That was Maria Dovale Ribeiro, Deputy Head of the UN Mission in Libya, UNSMIL, speaking to UN Radio's Ele Tero Guevane. Hundreds of Baka pygmies in eastern Cameroon are protesting against the massive destruction of the forest, their natural habitat by European and Chinese logging companies. The pygmies say the companies leave nothing in return and expose them to disease and poverty. Mukikinzaga reports from Lomi, eastern Cameroon. <laughs> Forty-five-year-old Paul Ongwana uses a loudspeaker as he moves from one Baka Pygmy settlement to the other in the village of Payo, inviting people in their language to come out and stop logging company trucks from having access to their village. Channel Africa asked Paul the message he was passing in the Baka language. He says logging companies do not love them and that their village has nothing to show as benefits since they started exploiting their forest 20 years ago. He says they urgently need schools, hospitals and social amenities. Hundreds who responded to the call danced on the only road in their neighborhood constructed by logging companies 20 years ago to enable them transport wood out of the village and its surroundings. The chief, Rodrigue Almana, says they are disgruntled with logging companies in their village. He says they see logging companies working in their forest, but they do not have anything to show in return like schools, hospitals and social amenities. He says logging companies make use of the naivety of the population and refuse to give them information about the quantity of wood and forest resources they have been authorized to exploit. He says trees as old as a hundred years are harvested within seconds and none is planted, while animals and natural resources they live on have been destroyed. The United Nations estimates that some 70,000 Baka pygmies live in the forests of eastern Cameroon. It has been their habitat for thousands of years where they lived on game, 
wild fruits and tubers and used natural herbs to treat themselves until 20 years ago when it became the target of logging companies, most of them from Europe and China. The companies receive authorizations to exploit wood from the Ministry of Forestry and Wildlife in the capital Yaoundé, but are expected to pay 10% of their income as royalties. Isidore Chofo, the highest government official in Lomi, says the money is used for the development of all of places where there are forests, not the Baka settlements alone. He says the government of Cameroon is very much aware of the challenges the Baka pygmies face and is ready to help, but that Baka pygmies should prove that in future they will make good use of the infrastructure by beginning to send their children massively to schools and making use of farming lands that are available in the locality. He says when Baka pygmies start doing that, the state will accompany them. Logging is one of the major activities from which the Cameroonian government hopes to make a profit to help it achieve its 2035 development targets. Besides being home to many rural communities, the forest region has become a sector that provides more than a quarter of Cameroon's export earnings. Alexander Butcher of UNICEF says Cameroon should protect the rights of backers while developing its resources. You know that because the forests are shrinking, parents who are hunters-gatherers traditionally have to go for weeks sometimes to find food in the forest. So while they're in the forest, children are left by themselves. They're hungry as well, they're starving, there's no food here. The UN considers backers as indigenous people whose rights are abused wherever they are. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. Burundi is hosting the 11th edition of the East African Community Military Games and Culture Events from August the 24th to September the 6th in a bid to foster military cohesion among the EAC armies. However, neighboring Rwanda still mistrusts the Burundian government and will not be participating in the events. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. The 11th edition of the East African Community Military Games and Culture Events is due to kick off on August 26th, bringing together competitors from the EAC members. Speaking to journalists in Bujumbura to announce this event, Colonel Gaspar Balatuza, the Burundi National Defense Forces spokesman, said it's the second time for Burundi to host these games after 10 years of integration within the East African community. Burundi is ready to host the East African Military Games and Culture Event 11th edition from 24th August up to 6th September 2017. Officially, contingent will arrive in our country on 24th August this year. And officially, opening ceremony are waiting to be attended on Saturday 26th at Prince Louis Stadium from 9 o'clock in the morning. The objective of uh, these games is to consolidate military cohesion and esprit de corps among militaries through games and cultural events. Ten years of effective integration of Burundi in the East African community. This is the same time for our country to host these games. The first 
One has been organized successfully in 2011. Burundi, Tanzania, Uganda and Kenya will participate in the competition as South Sudan will be present as an observer. However, Rwanda is not taking part into the games. Asked about the reason behind the absence of the neighboring country in those competitions, the spokesperson for the army said Rwanda has not participated into the preparations for this competition, which started in February, involving all EAC members except that country. As for the possible consequences of Rwanda's absence in the competition, the army spokesman says it's a loss. The East African Community Military Games and Culture Events are organized each year, hosted by one of the EAC member states and aim at reinforcing social cohesion and esprit de corps. Last year, Rwanda hosted the 10th session of the Games and Burundi did not participate in them. As a reminder, relations between Burundi and Rwanda are at loggerheads since 2015 when Burundi fell into a political crisis following the decision of President Pienkoronziza to stand as a flag bearer for the ruling party in the presidential elections that he won in July that year. The government of Burundi has repeatedly accused Rwanda of hosting rebels and ill-weed people wishing to destabilize the country, what Rwanda has insistently rejected. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bujumbura. In celebration of Women's Month, Channel Africa, together with the J.M. Busha Investment Group, will be holding a discussion on African women and entrepreneurship. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV at 802 on the audio bouquet on the 29th of August 2017 for the conversation on Africa Midday from 1200 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. The offense. In celebration of Women's Month, Channel Africa, together with the J.M. Busher Investment Group, will be holding a discussion on African women and entrepreneurship. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV at 802 on the audio bouquet on the 29th of August 2017 for the conversation on Africa Midday from 1200 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Angolans vote in parliamentary elections which will lead to the selection of a new president. UNICEF says there has been an increase in the number of what it calls children human bombs by Boko Haram militants in northeast Nigeria. And U.S. President Donald Trump defends his record on opposing social hatred at a rally of his supporters in Phoenix, Arizona. Those are the stories making headlines.
A long-running corruption investigation could bring down Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu is the subject of police inquiries into allegations of bribery and fraud, claims he has repeatedly denied and described as politically motivated. Earlier this month, he held a rally of his own right-wing Likud party to address the claims. The BBC's Middle East correspondent Tom Bateman has been following events and sent us this report. Well, it's a hot night in Tel Aviv, and you can hear people have been shouting Bibi for Benjamin Netanyahu. This is a huge rally of his supporters. He's due on the stage shortly, and these people have come, as you can hear, amid all of these corruption allegations, to support him. I love you. I love you, Bibi. What's your name? My name is Tomer. We have seen a lot of politicians and even mayors in Israel that have been accused by the police and after that the court find them free to go and not guilty. It is left wing who is arranging this hunt on the leaders. It doesn't matter, they bringing up the same old stuff they brought up 10 years ago and uh, Bibi is the best. Benjamin Netanyahu has just been making his way through the crowd here. About to head up towards the microphone. They are recruiting people for an unprecedented and obsessive witch hunt against me and my family. Their goal is to carry out a government coup. Mr. Netanyahu has barely concealed contempt for the press claims against him. At his Likud rally earlier this month, he called them fake news, whipped up by the left and hyped by a hostile media. The Israeli press has given detailed coverage to police inquiries surrounding claims he received illicit gifts, including cigars and pink champagne, and separate accusations of a conflict of interest by some in his inner circle during Israel's purchase of German-built submarines. Hello, I'm Tom. Nice to meet you. How are you? One man who thinks his typically combative response may have been sparked by the momentum of the police investigations is Yoez Hendel, a former director of communications to the Israeli PM. Netanyahu now fighting the battle of his life. Everyone can choose his own way how to fight it. Netanyahu chose the Trump way to blame the media and the left and others. Now, part of his accusations are quite uh, accurate. Yes, the media criticizing Netanyahu from his first day. Yes, he is a good prime minister in many aspects. But after we said all that, we might find ourselves in the next two, three years with another prime minister, which can happen in elections. I hope for Israel and for the prime minister that he will not find himself in jail or in court. At the weekend, a regular anti-Netanyahu protest found itself curtailed as police arrested two of its organizers. The move was condemned by opposition MPs, including Michal Rosin of the left-wing Meretz party, who thinks a cloud hanging over Israel's premier could impact policy decisions. I think Netanyahu is panicking. I think he's feeling that the, you know, the floor is moving under him. He will try to go to the far, far right wing, to the extremists. More, you know, uh, talking about security of Israel, talking about... Our military forces. Of course, he says that this is a witch hunt, this is persecution from the left, from parties like your own, from people, he says, frankly, who can't beat him at the ballot box, and so they resort to these lurid allegations which aren't true. 
that's a joke. The attorney general, it's his appointment. The chief of the police, he's the, the one that he nominated. So the investigation is going on not because of the left wing, it's going on because the police think there's something in there. Mr Netanyahu denies all the claims and has faced no charges. In a country where corruption probes into politicians are not uncommon, his rousing support may help shape the coverage. He will certainly hope the claims fade as fast as the froth on the pink champagne he is accused of wrongly accepting. That report by the BBC's Tom Bateman. The United Nations has called on Palestinian leaders to address the destructive consequences of their differences, particularly as it relates to the Gaza Strip. During the monthly briefing by the UN Secretariat to the Security Council on developments in the region, a senior official called for an agreement that would allow the legitimate Palestinian authorities to take up their responsibilities in Gaza as a step towards forming a united democratic leadership for Palestinians. Hamas and the Palestinian Authority have since 2007 ruled the Gaza Strip and the West Bank respectively as international calls mount for them to reach consensus. Show and Bryce Peace has more. A recent UN report indicates that the Gaza Strip could become unlivable by 2020. And while a return to final status issues remains the top priority, Infighting between Palestinian factions is complicating matters further. Miroslav Jenka is the Assistant Secretary General for Political Affairs. I call on Palestinian leaders to address the destructive consequences of the divisions. I encourage them to reach agreement that would allow the legitimate Palestinian authorities to take up their responsibilities in Gaza as a step towards the formation of a united, democratically elected Palestinian government on the basis of the PLAO principles. Hamas must also ensure that calm is maintained by stopping militant building build-up against Israel and by doing its utmost to sustain security at the border with Egypt. Israel in June agreed to a Palestinian Authority request to reduce its electricity feed into the Gaza Strip, seen as a means of pressurizing Hamas to relinquish its hold on the enclave it has governed since 2007. Despite the import of fuel from Egypt to run the Gaza power plant, most residents are experiencing the sweltering summer heat with only four to five hours of electricity per day. The impact of the ongoing energy crisis is far-reaching, affecting the availability of clean water, health care and sanitation services. The UN continues to provide the lifeline through its provision of emergency fuel supporting a number of critical facilities. The UN warning that divisions between the factions should not further affect the already suffering populations of the Gaza Strip. The punishing measures taken against Gaza by the Palestinian Authority since April only add to the crippling humanitarian effect on the population of Israel's closures. Whatever the political differences between the Palestinian factions, it is not the people of Gaza who should pay the price. 
August 26th will mark the third year anniversary of the ceasefire that ended the last round of hostilities between Hamas and Israel in Gaza in 2014. And despite reconstruction efforts since then, almost 30,000 people remain displaced while funding commitments continue to fall short. The UN has again called on donors to urgently respond to a $25 million humanitarian appeal made in July in the wake of the enclave's current electricity crisis and to fill the current 70% funding gap. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. UN agencies in Iraq are gearing up to how thousands of civilians expected to flee the city of Talafa. The northern city has been under the control of the terrorist group ISIL, also known as Daesh, for the past three years. The Iraqi military have launched an operation to retake Talafa and surrounding communities from the extremists. Diane Penn reports. The offensive began on Sunday, and the UN estimates that so far up to 40,000 people have already fled the northern city. Andrei Mahechich is a spokesperson with the UN refugee agency, UNHCR. Telafar in Nineveh province, some 65 kilometers northwest of Mosul, fell under the control of extremist armed groups in 2014. Its pre-conflict population was thought to be around 200,000 people. Since April this year, more than 30,000 people fled Telafar district, many living in camps, sheltering other families, also mainly displaced from Mosul. Humanitarians have not been able to access Telafar since 2014. It's feared thousands could still be inside the city, where conditions are said to be extremely difficult. UNHCR reports that residents have been surviving on unclean water and bread over the past three to four months. We fear that Iraqi civilians are likely to be held as human shields again and that attempts to flee could result in executions and shootings. We call on all parties to the conflict to allow civilians to leave the conflict area and to access safety. We are also concerned about the reports that in some instances displaced Iraqi families from Telafa are being denied access to safety in locations that have capacity to absorb them. Many families who have escaped are walking up to 20 hours in blistering heat to reach safety. They are arriving at UN sites exhausted, dehydrated and in poor health. Olivia Hedden is a spokesperson with IOM, the International Organization for Migration. A lot of people who've arrived in our emergency sites require urgent uh, medical care. We're seeing a lot of traumatic injuries, um, including fractured limbs sustained as a result of the conflict. We're also seeing severely malnourished children, um, people with gastritis and upper respiratory infections. Um, we're providing medical care, shelter and non-food items such as mattresses, fans, hygiene kits, uh, solar lights. The World Health Organization, WHO, is also supporting civilians who have escaped from Telafar. WHO is focusing on providing trauma care in areas as close to the fighting as possible. The goal is to treat people early after they have sustained a traumatic injury, which greatly boosts their survival. Deanne Penn, United Nations. 30 million people in South Africa are currently living in poverty. A new poverty report released by Statistics South Africa yesterday shows that poverty levels decreased since 2006 but increased in 2011. 
persons living in extreme poverty, which is less than 500 rands per month, increased from 11 million in 2011 to 13.8 million in 2015. Those most vulnerable to poverty in the society are children aged 17 or younger, females and black Africans living in rural areas, especially from the Eastern Cape and Limpopo provinces. Amina Akram reports. Dr. Padli Lehotla is Statistician General at Statsese. He says poverty levels in South Africa are increasing. Uh, but uh, when we come uh, to people living in poverty, uh, we can see that uh, uh, these numbers have uh, increased uh, quite uh, dramatically. 2011 was a, a swing a year beyond which uh, poverty increased. But if we take 2006 and 2015, we can see the reductions in poverty. This is a result of the decline in economic performance, crippled by drought and the high levels of unemployment. 2011 to 2015, poverty has actually swung up, upwards. So if we think about uh, the drought, if we think about uh, the negative growth that South Africa is facing, surely the poor are getting impacted, or rather the number of poor is increasing. What is the number of poor persons in South Africa? Uh, We can see that uh, that number has been increasing over time. Uh, At least from 2011, uh, you can see that uh, 13 plus 8 plus 8.5, there you get uh, your, 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 your 30 million. The statistician general warns that children under the age of 17 remain the most vulnerable to poverty. Uh, it's in the, the children are in the majority of those uh, that are poor. And I think that's a, a key challenge. If your children are poor, they are less likely to go to school, or even if they are in school, they'll perform badly. And that is South Africa's Statistician General Paddy Lehotla ending that report by Amina Akram. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. Glencore's Zambian copper mining unit, Mopane Copper Mines, says it will be laying off nearly 5,000 workers due to persistent electricity supply disruptions. The company says although they will work on optimizing the use of limited power that is received, they expect to effectively close several areas and scale back operations that may affect a total of 4,700 direct employees. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister, Rob Davies, says that the development of infrastructure is an important and a fundamental catalyst for regional integration for increasing inter-regional trade and industrialization in Africa. Davies was speaking at the opening of the two-day infrastructure business Africa Forum in Santin, north of Johannesburg. A British charity organization, Oxfam, has warned that South Africa's efforts to alleviate poverty will fail because the government's policies do not put enough focus on job creation. The warning comes after Statistics South Africa released its Africa Poverty Trends for the period from 2006 to 2015. According to the report, 55% of South Africans are living in poverty, with the children being the most vulnerable. Tim Bingosi Lamene of Oxfam, South Africa, 
has some advice for the government. South Africa needs to concentrate more on improving access to education, but also improving uh, the quality of education. But at the same time, we do know that even those people who have been educated in the higher quality universities still find it hard to find employment because of the number of policy choices of the past, which have tended to squeeze out people out of employment. The U.S. tax inspector behind the unmasking of one of the giants of online crime has told the BBC how he discovered the identity of the man who became known as Dread Pirate Roberts. FBI investigators had been working on the case for two years without success. Gary Alford says he found the name of the man behind a one billion U.S. dollar internet drugs superstore by searching on Google. The BBC's Alex Ritson reports. LSD, cocaine and ecstasy are now just a click of a mouse away. You could buy any drug imaginable wherever you were in the world on the Silk Road website. Hidden on the dark web, which is just like the regular internet, except it's anonymous by design and you need special software to access it, it was making millions of dollars every week. The world's largest advertising group, Wire and Plastic Products, has cut its full-year net sales outlook after a drop in demand for consumer goods clients. WPP, led by high-profile businessman Martin Sorrell, reported a first-half like-for-like net sales down 0.5%. It cut its full-year target to between 0 and 1% growth. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.18 in South Africa. It's at 10.8 in Botswana and at 8.97 in Zambia. It's also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and at 0.84 to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,285 and platinum $975 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $52.15 a barrel. Channel Africa. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Figile, La Liga to assist SAFA to develop a better football association in the country. Yeah. Um, do you know? Yeah, Take us through that. It's, I think it's a good deal. It's a memorandum of understanding. They will help them materially and also assisting their coaches to reach a certain stage. I think they know what talent we have here, but we don't you know, cherish our own. So they're going to ask, assist us in that way. Okay, we look forward to it. Give us an update. First up in our sports update this hour, we're starting off with athletics. The official launch for the sub-two-hour marathon project in Africa was held at the Sports Science Institute of South Africa in Cape Town last night. The project conceived by Professor Yanis Pitsiladis from the University of Brighton in the United Kingdom was sparked by concerns over whether doping was behind many of the top marathon performances of late. 
Patsilaidis and his team, including Professor Andrew Bosch from UCT, wanted to show that fast speeds can be achieved without doping. Professor Bosch explains. Absolutely hit the nail on the head. And that's one of the things that was in Yanis's head when he came up with the idea. So uh, being involved with uh, athletes from Kenya uh, and the marathon, you know, the two hours is always like a thing that hovers around and will it ever be broken and so on. So with that kind of a background and the world record being taken down a couple of times of late uh, and every time it gets taken down, there's a big question around, well, uh, is it a clean record or not? And Yanis has been working for some time in anti-doping stuff. So there was another gloving there that he thought, well, OK, why don't we try and have a, a really good attempt at using sports science and sports medicine uh, to fast forward the progression of the world record towards two hours and hopefully at just under two hours. And in the process, we make absolutely 100% sure that the athlete, that, uh, that the, our athletes that are doing it or part of it are absolutely 100% clean with the, 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 the idea being to show to everybody that you can, using science and sports medicine, achieve greatness and you don't have to resort to EPO and other drugs and, and so on. Bosch says while the project was launched almost three years ago, it made sense to launch now in Africa as the odds are that the athlete who will break the record will be from this continent. We've been speaking about this, Yanis and I, for a long time, that we need an African launch, considering that all the top runners are pretty much found uh, in Africa and predominantly then uh, in Ethiopia and Kenya. And probably, probably, uh, our guy who's going to do this, if we get it right, uh, will come from one of those two, two countries. So it seemed a bit obvious almost to have an African launch, especially since I'm here sitting down in the southern tip of it uh, and in the Sports Science Institute with UCT Sports Science and all the rest. It seemed to all be... Uh, fairly obvious that one should do it and it's just been a little bit uh, of a time getting it going and uh, Janus was here for a conference so we thought oh this is the ideal opportunity so we we combined uh, his presence here. And South African men's university football team will play the third and the last group match against South Korea tonight. A team will need to beat Korea convincingly. Coach Karabo Mukhudi says the team lacks certain qualities to compete with the best in the world. That's very easy for me to explain as a coach. In actual fact, this is part of what I do at home and uh, I do workshops trying to correct this, trying to empower coaches uh, through our youth in the quarters uh, in what we need as a country to really compete on a fair footing with the world. And I always tell our coaches at the top of the hierarchy in football is tactics and then there's execution which is mainly the techniques. The third aspect, which was execution, technique, we are still at 60%. You know, we are not as skilled as we think we are for the game. And finally, with cycling news, team dimension data for Kobega's Yusef Reguigui sprinted to a ninth place finish on the fourth stage of the Vuelta Hispana today. Matteo Trentin, Quickstep Flows Club, to the stage victory from a mass sprint finish. Juan Jose Lobato of the Lotto NL Jumbo finished in second. And Tom Van Asbrook, the Kenan Dole Dropper Club, rounded out the stage podium. Chris Froome of Team Sky retained the overall race lead. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Naam.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa Angola goes to the polls today to elect a new president and UN envoy expresses concern over human trafficking in Libya. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-630-03327. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Kaifa Semenya with a song titled Woman got a right to be.
She's got the right to be. Woman got the right to 